0: All right, I think we'll get started. Um, It's uh, about six minutes after the hour. So um, as folks come in, they'll come in. So um, at the top of your bulletin uh, today, we're gonna be starting off with a scripture passage from Isaiah 55 verse eight. But I wanna welcome everybody here to Milwaukee Mennonite Church on this second Sunday of Lent, uh, March 13th. And uh, thanks everybody for being here. Thanks to the friends at home for logging in as well. Um, and thanks definitely to Stevers um, for handling the tech and to Connie um, for uh, covering us some music today. So it's kind of a big uh, turning point or milestone in the pandemic because we can actually do congregational singing um, in our underneath our masks here. And um, Stevers has actually set up a microphone here to uh, catch more than just simply the ambient sound of our singing uh, for our folks at home. So this is um, really exciting and again from uh, you've been getting updates from the church at home team and this is you know a direct result of the um, improving pandemic situation so we're you know keeping our fingers and all possible digits crossed that um, the pandemic will situation will continue to improve and as it does um, you know or as it continues at least in this situation if not improve more then um, we can continue having congregational singing again underneath our masks so this is really exciting um, at some point, we'll be able to enjoy food and drink together. I took a peek at the, at the progress in the kitchen there, and it's looking really good, but nothing's, you know there's no appliances and nothing's hooked up yet. So we still have some time before that does, but that'll be nice. So, so um, this season, in the Lenten season, um, we're benefiting, uh, as we often do, with the materials that are provided by uh, the Leader um, magazine, which is uh, put out by uh, the good folks um, with um, Mennonite Church USA and Mennonite Church Canada. And the scriptural um, uh, citation that they uh, chose as a kind of focus um, scripture for this season, which they uh, have called Seeking God's Ways, um, is from Isaiah. And it's at the top of your bulletin there. And I'll read it. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. And um, I want to give a little bit of background as to how the leader folks um, Uh, selected this passage and how it sort of guides um, this season's uh, uh, worship services. They kept circling back to this verse from the prophet Isaiah, and they realized that the scriptures for each Sunday that have been selected, pre-selected with the revised common lectionary, reveal the truth about the ways of God, as well as the many ways God's people get it wrong. So scripture after scripture in this season is about how people think God offers one thing Like, for example, a privilege, but what God really offers may look quite different, could be inclusion. Sometimes it's how we think the world works in one way, but it really works in a different way. And it sometimes indicates how we think power means one thing, but in fact, power really does mean something very, very different, right? So that's kind of the the paradox or the challenges of the scriptures. Um, that are part of the revised common lectionary through this season which of course is a time to repent um, and to turn away from our turn from our ways and recommit ourselves to the ways of god as revealed in jesus and so that's why they've identified the 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 theme for this season as seeking god's ways kind of not focusing on our ways or our way of thinking about how uh, we should be conducting ourselves but looking listening closely for the voice of god and seeking god's ways Now for today, there is a um, specific uh, theme which is um, titled, From Fear to Compassion. And I invite you to read along with me in the focus statement. Read out loud together the focus statement, which is uh, also at the top of your bulletin there. As we seek God's way, we move from a place where fear dictates our actions to a space where our response to others is guided by compassion. With that, I would invite you to stand, um, if you're able, um, for our call to worship. And this is also printed in your bulletin. Together we seek the way of God. We come to ask, whom shall we fear? we long to gather under the wings of Christ as a mother hen. Please be seated. So that theme of the mother hen hen, is something that's very, very important today. If you flip your bulletin over, there's a line drawing here that shows a mother hen, right? um, Doing the kind of God thing and caring for God's children, right? um, With a certain amount of danger or threat kind of looming in the background there. And thanks to Rachel, the ultimate crafty person um, <laughs> who had uh, looked for some kind of uh, visual representation, in indication of this mother hen, and even going as far as goodwill and not finding anything and putting a mail out to the folks in the congregation. But she did um, bring today this cute little chicken soup bowl that has got a Nice picture of a mother hen there. So we won't take it too far um, beyond that, thinking about like how the hen ended up being in the soup there. But <laughs> just like to stay with the mother hen as the kind of uh, um, the, 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 the motherly or parenting uh, com- source of comfort. Um, and then you know, time and again, including after our um, service, when you take things home, just uh, you know reflect on this image here, which I think is a very, very um, nice image to, to keep in mind. All right, please pray with me. God, you are our light and our salvation. You are the stronghold of our life. Of whom shall we be afraid? We seek a home in you. We seek a heart of curiosity. We seek an eye for beauty. Grounded in you, sheltered by your wings, you reveal a world unfolding in layers of love. Though we will suffer in the journey before us, our consent to your way of compassion makes us strong. Continue to gather and release, O God, as we peck out our path. Amen. Now, if you take your um, voices together and turn to the land acknowledgement, which is on page uh, 878, or is number 878, excuse me. And you can just follow along here. We acknowledge that we are gathering on the traditional territory of indigenous peoples We affirm that settlers have specific responsibilities in the journey of reconciliation with indigenous peoples. We are especially grateful to the Ho-Chunk, Kickapoo, Menominee, Potawatomi, and Sauk and Meskwaki peoples. We give thanks to Creator and to those peoples who have stewarded this land for generations. We are grateful for the opportunity to live, work, and worship here as we witness the reconciling movement of the spirit and seek to live into right relations with our indigenous neighbors and all of creation. All right, still keep your hymnal here and we are going to, for the first time in many, many months, sing a hymn together. real time. And those of you at home, if you have your voices together, it'd be great if you wanted to sing along. This is going to be Mountain of God, and we're going to sing all three verses. Please join me now in the responsive reading that's um, at the bottom left column on your bulletin. Your ways, O God, are higher than our ways. We seek God's ways. As we now move into a time of confession, we have the um, also provided by the leader the Lenten Prayer of Confession, which is adapted from Isaiah 55. It's at the top um, upper right of your bulletin. Please pray with me. Holy One, we seek you while you may be found. Have mercy on us, O God, for our thoughts are not your thoughts, and our ways are not your ways. As we walk with Christ on this Lenten journey, let us see your way more clearly and follow your way more faithfully. Blessed are we whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed are we whose sins our God does not count against us. God's unfailing love surrounds those who trust in the Holy One. Let us rejoice and be glad.
1: Luke 13, 31 to 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today tomorrow and the next day i must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of jerusalem 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 the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it how often have i desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing see your house is left to you and i tell you You will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord.
0: So the children's time today is actually going to be a video. um, So the leader materials have provided us with, or provided member congregations um, with short videos that go with the scripture and the themes for each uh, Sunday during Lent. And so we're gonna watch that together. I remember when I was a kid, before we didn't have videos in school, but we definitely had like things like film strips and films and stuff like that. And everybody said, we're going to watch a film strip today, watch a film. It's like, ah, going gaga. So um, it's kind of nice to, to actually watch a video every now and then um, in, in worship as well. And like so many children's time times, it's going to be, the message is something that's accessible, I think, to all of us. So go ahead and watch
2: Hey, Lucia, how are you today? I'm okay. I can see that you seem to be quite happy. Oh, I am, I am. I'm almost always happy. That's just me. Happy. Good for you. Aren't you happy? I am okay. I have a job to do, so I have to be serious about that. Oh, what is your job? I guard sheep. What do you guard them from? From coyotes and foxes and dogs that might want to kill them. Dogs? Like me? Well, they look a lot like you. And if they threaten my sheep, yes, like you. I would never, never do that. Well, good. Aren't you ever afraid of those foxes and coyotes? They could hurt you. Yes, they could hurt me but my job is to protect them so if a coyote or fox shows up i gather the herd into a group and i stand between them and the predator i love those sheep my love for them is stronger than my fear that's kind of like jesus really how
3: in the Bible, it says that Jesus is like a mother hen who gathers her
2: chicks under her to protect them. Jesus is like a mother hen? Yup. Very interesting. I suppose if there were sheep around in Bible times, there would be a story about a yama guarding them. Oh, Lucia, there
3: were sheeps and goats, but they didn't have yamas they had shepherds, people who took care of them. In fact, some of the best stories are about how the shepherd takes care of the sheep. Like the one about the shepherd who had 100 sheep. But one day, when they got back home from grazing the fields all day, there were only 99. So the shepherd made sure the 99 were in a safe place and then he went to find the one that was missing. Was it
2: dark? I don't know. It could have been. If it was dark, wasn't the shepherd afraid to go looking for the lost sheep? Probably. But his love for his lost sheep was more important than his
3: fear of the dark. I see. And the
2: Bible says Jesus is like that shepherd. Jesus is like a mother hand and a kind shepherd. Hmm. If the Bible was being written today, would it say that Jesus is like a yama? Very possible, Lucia. Very possible.
4: Uh, much like the sermon that I preached on singleness um, and the sermon that I preached on universalism, this one was written pretty well in advance of this week. Um, it was a sermon without a home, uh, and I've been waiting on it for a while, I think, and uh, just never really found a good place for it, but it ended up working up, out pretty well, I think. Um, that this is the week when we talk about Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, so here goes nothing. Um, please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen." In one of the most famous Christian defenses of slavery that was circulated throughout the U.S. before the Civil War, the Reverend Richard Fuller decried abolitionist Christians as enthusiasts. When abolitionist Christians said slavery is a sin, Fuller argued, they were making an immoderate, excessive, and indefensible moral claim. When abolitionist Christians condemned the torture and rape of the enslaved, arguing that slavery was an inherently violent institution and could not be otherwise, Fuller claimed that they were surely over-exaggerating. True, Fuller said, some slave owners did rape and torture their slaves. But when abolitionist Christians pointed this out, Fuller thought, they were taking aim not at the system of slavery itself, but its abuses. It was only because of their lack of moral and intellectual clarity that the abolitionists could not tell the difference between the two. If they could, then they would see that there are good masters out there that made the lives of enslaved African Americans dramatically better. This is because those masters provided for their material needs, allowed for their conversion to Christianity, and provided them with the benefits that came with the adoption of civilized Western culture. In other words, abolitionists just could not see the good in slavery. They were trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater. What slavery needed was not abolition, in other words, but reform and proper regulation. Fuller's words mortify us today, and rightly so. If any of you are curious as to why my uh, my doctoral uh, qualifying exams were so difficult, it was because I spent 10 hours a day reading stuff like this. we rightly recognize them. Fuller's argument as paternalistic, racist, and naive. We ask how it could be that a person so familiar with the text of Scripture could ignore the message of Isaiah that true worship of God is, to quote Isaiah, to loosen the chains of injustice and untie the ropes of the enslaved, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. That's from Isaiah 58.6. We might ask how it is that that Reverend Fuller missed the fact that time and time again the prophets declared that when the Messiah came, he would release all those in captivity from every form of bondage, including the bondage of slavery. Or how it it could be that he failed to see that Jesus himself had said uh, that this call to release the oppressed from bondage was at the heart of his own ministry. To quote from Jesus in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because she has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to set the oppressed free, and declare the year of the Lord's favor. We may be thankful that our Anabaptist forebearers, both Mennonites and Quakers, jointly condemned slavery as an inherently violent institution and rightly saw that Jesus came to release all people from bondage, taking a very, very different pathway than Reverend Fuller did. But the topic I'd like to bring up today is not slavery, even though, for those of you who know me, I talk about slavery quite frequently as my main area of study. Or rather, I I did come here to talk about slavery, just not slavery as we might think of it. I mentioned Dr. Fuller because I want you to pay attention to his arguments, that abolitionists are too enthusiastic, that they're excessive, that they're immoderate, that they're unrealistic that they fail to distinguish between the abuses of a system and the system itself, that they fail to see the good the system brings, Uh, that they are calling for abolition when they should be calling for reform. When the system we're talking about is slavery, Fuller's arguments seem absurd. Any goods Fuller sees coming out of enslavement either aren't real goods or they can surely be obtained in other ways. Abolitionists weren't immoderate, they weren't excessive. Slavery should be condemned as a moral evil full stop. Um, They weren't being unrealistic because we as human beings really really can live without enslaving other human beings. Uh, Abolitionists had the vision to see that all of this was possible. Um, And abolitionists were right not to differentiate between a system and its abuses when it came to slavery. Slavery really is an irredeemably violent institution. There is no making it better. But what about in our own day when the call for abolition comes against not slavery, but against the prison instead of against slavery. Suddenly, direct parallels to Fuller's arguments can be found in abundance. Incarcerating a person, we hear, is different from enslaving someone. So those who call for an end to the prison as an institution really are failing to distinguish between the abuse of a system and the system itself. But can we be so sure that it is possible to draw a bright line between incarceration and enslavement? There has been, and always will be, a species relationship between the two that is very, very difficult to suss out throughout the history of both of these two institutions. These two institutions are remarkably similar both in their material conditions. You, You put a person in chains for both of them. Um, and in the justifications for their existence. In fact, as Angela David pointed out decades ago, this relationship is perfectly embodied in the weird caveat that many individuals don't pay attention to that exists in the 13th Amendment. Um, Here's the text of the 13th Amendment quoted verbatim, "...neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States." The U.S. Constitution, in other words, explicitly states that from a legal standpoint, incarceration is is a form of enslavement. Um, In fact, it's the only legally permitted form of enslavement. Before you dismiss this as an overstatement, you might be interested to know that people in the ancient world tended to define uh, incarceration in the same way. Uh, Remember the passages that I shared from Luke and Isaiah, the ones that say that when the Messiah comes, he'll set all the captives free? The term that's translated captives is sometimes translated prisoners. It's also sometimes translated as uh, slaves. Um, That's because captivity in the biblical sense, the term that is used in both Greek and Hebrew, refers to all forms of human bondage. It means enslavement. It means incarceration. It means occupation by one of the empires. Uh, Jesus has come to set humanity free from all of those forms of captivity, according to Uh, both the Gospels and the Messianic passages in the Prophets. When the Messiah comes, he will abolish all of these forms of captivity. We all know of the evils of mass incarceration. This is something that I'm sure has been brought up several times in in the circles in which we we find ourselves. We know that black and indigenous folks are uh, are locked up at rates much higher than whites. We know that that is an injustice. But do we believe that the prison as it exists in our own time itself is an injustice? The prison is an inherently violent institution. And we know this. It's generally known within our culture. Think of the, the jokes that you hear ubiquitously throughout our culture that make uh, references to prison rape, um, as though it were something that would be, that, that is, is funny. Jokes of don't drop the soap in prison, uh, of in prison showers, that kind of variety of joke. These jokes are based in a reality, and we realize this reality, that those who are incarcerated are submitted to horrendous violence, and especially sexual violence. When an individual is incarcerated, he is subject not only to various forms of violence from fellow inmates and prison guards, but his every move is manipulated both by the guards and by the physical environment in which he's in. The institution, just as it's set up in its physical form is not aimed at rehabilitation. It teaches prisoners that violence and manipulation are acceptable ways of achieving the compliance of those around them. As Howard Zare once put it, the prisoners who have the best chance of reintegrating into society after they are released are those who resist the system most strenuously while they are incarcerated. He was thinking of individuals who act out, who resist the prison's violent discipline. Further, there is an urgent need to end what's oftentimes referred to as the prison industrial complex, a perverse merger of the interests of media, large corporations, and the criminal legal system. The result of this merger is that incarceration becomes profitable, and the incarceration rate is driven by economic incentives and not the crime rate. Reoffending actually becomes profitable under this system, and therefore, the system encourages the re- reoffending and, re- and resists rehabilitation in various different ways. If you're interested in learning more about it, there's um, an African-American Mennonite by the name of James Samuel Logan who wrote a book called Good Punishment with a question mark in the title, um, which delves into this, this phenomenon of the prison industrial complex quite deeply. Likewise, prisons have an atrocious public safety record. They demonstrably do not make any of us safer. In fact, they produce traumatized people who are more likely to commit things that are defined as offenses in the future. They can't be reformed. They have to be abolished. Likewise, it will not do us any good to talk about prison abolition without talking about police abolition. Here I'm just going from one controversial topic to another. Because one of the primary reasons why the police exist as an institution is to incarcerate individuals. Many of us have marched in the movement for black lives. We've marched for an end to police brutality. But The question is, do we believe that policing as we know it, itself is unjust? To quote the prison abolitionist Paul Butler, we know that police don't solve crimes. When it comes to murder, they try, but even then they're not particularly effective. That was the full quote from Butler. When Butler said this, he was referring to the fact that the murder closure rate, the percentage of murder cases where a suspect is actually arrested and charged, hovers between 30 and 40% in most US cities. So for the vast majority of murders, there is no individual that is charged. I, know of no, I also know of no major US city where the murder closure rate is above 60%. That includes, the and those statistics, when when charges are actually brought against an individual. Those include cases where a person is arrested, charged, and is later definitively exonerated of the charge of murder, say through the work of an innocence project. Since that statistic includes wrongful arrests and forced confessions, which is a larger problem, I think, within the US criminal legal system than we oftentimes admit, The rate at which police actually solve murders is is significantly lower, though I I couldn't provide you with an estimate of what they actually are. In other words, the majority of individuals who murder someone get away with it in the United States. Um, But this is actually something that most police forces will invest resources in. But as Butler suggested, when it comes to what are oftentimes considered lesser crimes, police really do not try to solve them. They're not made priorities by most police departments in most major cities. And anyone who has lived in a major city and reported a bike stolen knows this. A detective will come and take down a statement, file a report, and unless you are extremely lucky, you will never see that stolen bike again. This is because police agencies don't expend resources predominantly upon solving crimes. Detectives, whose job it is to focus on solving crimes, typically make up only about 15% of the officers in any given police department. And unless they are working on a murder case, those detectives will typically spend their time filing reports for crimes they know will likely go unsolved. If police are meant to solve crimes, they are not particularly efficient at it, as Butler said. So what do police actually do? Well to quote Alex Vitale, police exist to preserve the existing social order by managing and even producing inequality. This entails policing the poor and the non-white. It entails policing the homeless and enforcing statutes that amount to criminalizing poverty. It entails the utilization of intimidation and suppression tactics against protests for labor and racial justice. It entails over-policing predominantly black neighborhoods. All of these been, have been prominent roles the police have played in society since their inception. Now think back to the Reverend Fuller's arguments that I listed at the top of this sermon. Does the voice in your head, as, as, as you're processing what I'm saying here, present you with the same arguments that he made when you hear the call to abolish prisons and police? Are they saying that abolition is immoderate, moderate, that it's excessive, that it's unrealistic, that it fails to distinguish between a system and its abuses. That it fails to see the good that prisons and police produce. That prisons and police don't need to be abolished, they just need to be reformed. If you hear that voice in your head, and believe me, I, I, even as an individual who's committed to this position, I hear it in my head all the time. Um, let me ask you, how is that voice different than Fuller's? If you think about it, Fuller's defense of slavery was far, far more rational than the modern defense of police and prisons. Fuller had basically all of human history on his side. When Fuller defended slavery, he was defending an institution that had existed as long as we we as a species have been on this planet. Slavery had existed in the overwhelming majority of human societies when Fuller made this argument. The abolitionists who were arguing for the end of slavery were really on historically shaky ground. How did they know that humanity could get on without slavery? They had had very few examples of societies that were actually able to pull that off. Police and prisons, however, are extraordinarily young institutions in the forms that we know them. The first policing organization was founded in London by Sir Robert Peel in only 1829 And the first modern prison, as in the penitentiary, came about around the same time. It depends, you you read the material, it depends on which one you choose first um, as the first modern prison. Um, But no matter how you slice it, the the institutions that abolitionists are asking to bring an end to are only around 200 years old. Human beings have existed without them for most of our history, and it's likely that we'll be able to exist without them again someday given different social economic and political circumstances. When our mennonite forebears declared slavery immoral, they were making a much more radical, much more untested, much more fragile and much more unrealistic stance than I'm taking right now. And yet, and yet their vision of the Messiah who rejects all forms of violence and sets all captives free necessitated that they have a radical imagination when it comes to what is possible in society. It necessitated that they envision what seemed to to most as the height of the impossible, improbable, pie-in-the-sky thinking, Uh, a world without slavery, a world where the violence of slavery wasn't just a regrettable but necessary evil, And when you put it in that context, they were the ones who took a radical leap into the unknown. And we now know that they were right to do so. In comparison, police and prison abolitionists are just taking some reasonable baby steps to that gigantic leap of faith. But then Christians have always known that really, if you think about it, we can get along without prisons and we can get along without police. It was a commonplace in early Christianity that Christ had given the church the things that make for peace, based on the passage from Luke for today. And they defined the things that make for peace as a set of convictions, techniques, and practices that allowed the church to resolve conflict nonviolently in a world where violence was thought to be necessary. Christ made a society without violence possible through his death and resurrection. Consider the following statement from Athanasius' classic treatise On the Incarnation, which was written in the 4th century. He's talking about recent converts to Christianity here. Back when they worshipped idols, the Greeks and barbarians were always at war with one another and were even cruel to their own kind. But a strange thing has happened. Since they came over to the school of Christ, they've laid aside their murderous cruelty and they no longer even think of war. On the contrary, all is peace among them and nothing remains except the desire for friendship. Those who hear the teaching of Christ turn from fighting to farming. And instead of arming themselves with swords, they extend their hands in prayer. It was a common argument, this kind of argument that, that Athanasius is making here, among the what are called oftentimes called the apologists in early Christianity, that Christ had given the church the resources to live without violence. That is why Christians learned war no more in fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah. And because Christians were committed to the resolution of conflict without recourse to violence, it was improper to submit a person to violence, even the violence of incarceration. Here are the words here of the Church Father Tertullian on what a Christian could not do if they served as a judge. We may grant that someone could hold such a position, that is, be a judge, but he would have to avoid the functions of his office, that is, without sentencing anyone to capital punishment, without taking honors, without condemning or judging and without putting anybody in chains or submitting them to torture. That last part, a Christian judge cannot put anyone in chains or submit them to torture, is directly relevant to what I'm talking about here. Tertullian didn't know the prison, at least the institution that we call the prison that exists in our day. The institution that we, as we know it, didn't exist in our day and only by analogy can you say that prisons existed in Tertullian's day. And still, he knew that the violence of incarceration had no place in the Christian community. If we cannot name prison abolitionism and police abolitionism as Christian commitments, I am afraid for us. I am afraid that we will be a double shame to both our Christian forebearers and to our Christian descendants. Christians like Tertullian will not understand how we could have seen incarceration or policing as anything other than a systemic evil? Did we not learn the things that make for peace from our Lord Jesus Christ? Did we not understand that as Christians we could not submit others to chains? Similarly, I worry that Christians hundreds of years from now who live in societies that have figured out how to get on without prisons and without police will look at us the way that we look at Reverend Fuller. They will be horrified at us for not seeing that anything good that comes from prisons either isn't a real good or can be obtained through other and better means. They will be horrified at our paternalism. They will be horrified at our lack of empathy with those who suffer under the violence of police and prisons. And they will be horrified at our lack of imagination. They'll be horrified that we simply could not think of a way to solve our social problems other than by locking people in cages and by sicking violent men with guns on them. And by now, we have had ample evidence to know that reform measures for police and prisons simply do not work. It would take me longer than is prudent to unpack here, but a short inventory, but as a short inventory, here are a list of reforms that have had no noticeable effect on the frequency of incidences of police brutality against people of color. Body cameras don't work, citizen review boards don't work, banning chokeholds does not work, implicit bias trainings do not work, Community policing initiatives do not work, officer diversification initiatives don't work, and the list goes on and on and on. If you want to talk about specific examples that I can give of any of those that have come out of my research, I'd be more than happy to talk with you about it. And to give you a sense of exactly how little reforms do for curbing the abuses of the prison system, consider the following. With a population of around 330 million people, the United States is home to about 4% of the inhabitants of planet Earth. And yet with a prison population of around 2 million, the United States is home to almost 25% of the world's prisoners. 4% of the overall world's population, a quarter of its prisoners. We believe in putting people in chains more than any other people group on this planet. Surely that's too many people in prison, and so what can we do to reduce that number? Well, according to the abolitionists Vincent Lloyd and Joshua Doubler, the three most radical reforms on offer short of abolition are these. First of all, we could release every person in state and federal custody who is incarcerated solely due to a nonviolent drug offense. We could reduce every pretrial defendant sitting in jail solely because they are unable to make bail and we could release every black person in federal and state prisons. The first measure fully would roll back the war on drugs. The second is a necessary step to ending the war on poverty and the third would roll back the new Jim Crow. If we did all three of these things and nobody is talking about doing all three of these things, all three proposals are considered extremely radical in most states it would reduce our prison population by just over 1 million people if we did all three of those things. That's a huge step forward, and it would be a relief compared to what we have now. But what it would not do, however, is end mass incarceration, even if we did all three of those things. Even by effectively cutting our prison population in half, we would still be a a nation with 4% of the world's population and around 14% of the world's prisoners. We would still lock up a far greater portion of our population than the vast majority of, of countries in the world with a prison population three times that of France and four times that of Germany. It is usually at this point that folks ask, so what's the alternative? And abolitionists have already come up with a surprising array of evidence-based answers. It's just a question of whether there's political will to actually attempt them. Community-based anti-violence initiatives and credible messenger programs, which, which uh, send unarmed individuals who are trained in de-escalation techniques into situations where violence might break out, can reduce homicides and gun violence without contributing to mass incarceration. Trained social workers can intervene in mental health crises without resorting to violence. Drug treatment programs can help get people clean. Investing in housing, education, and jobs actually reduces the crime rate. Hikes in police forces really don't do very much to it. These are actual evidence-based solutions, and they work way, way more efficiently than either prisons or cops. As I said before, the evidence overwhelmingly shows that the prison, at least as we know it, causes recidivism. It actually makes us all less safe. And putting more cops on the street doesn't seem to have any discernible effect on the crime rate, no matter where it happens. Further, investing in policing is a ridiculously expensive way about doing, of doing nothing about violent crime. Milwaukee PD gets full, a full half of the city's budget every year. Half. Think about that for a second. Think about how rampant police brutality is in the Milwaukee Police Department. If you can't do your job without killing black civilians, putting them in cages, and submitting them to torture while receiving half of a city's budget, you don't deserve to exist as an institution. You don't deserve for us to invest more money in you for body cameras or for implicit bias training. You just need to go. How much money would it take to do the job properly? 75% of a city's budget? 100% of a city's budget? It's just too much to ask. And while that budget is, is, is running, we're we operating with social programs that are ludicrously underfunded that could have a, a more substantive impact on public safety. Fortunately, all the alternatives to policing that I've mentioned above have had a better impact on lowering violent crime even when cities have underinvested in them. In other words, you get more for less with violence prevention and intervention programs, Um, with housing, jobs, education, mental health, and drug treatment services than you do with police and prisons. Which is why Wisdom and MICA are currently running a justice reinvestment campaign that aims at closing down three prisons in Wisconsin and reallocating the money for alternatives to incarceration. And even for abolitionists, emergency services of various sorts will still respond to crises like traffic accidents. Those emergency services just hopefully won't involve cops. No abolitionist I know of is in favor of getting rid of all first responders. They just want unarmed first responders. All of those are evidence-based solutions which work demonstrably better than policing. But I realize that most individuals don't form their beliefs about police and prisons based on evidence. I have abundant experience to the contrary. I cannot tell you the number of times people have asked me for alternatives, I've given them some alternatives, and then they will come back to me two days later and say, yeah, but you abolitionists have no alternative ideas. I give them alternatives and they just don't hear alternatives, and I think that likely that happens because they lack the imagination to see the alternatives as alternatives. So it's a, the, the battle, I think, is really a matter of what our social imagination is, and not necessarily of providing good statistics. And it needs to be said part of the reason why they lack that good social imagination is because of the way in which our social imagination gets formed for those of us who are white. White folks are basically taught that the only credible solution to most social emergencies that arise is to call the cops. Anything else might be considered doing nothing. Our social imagination, in many ways within the U.S., has been copified, if you want to make up a term for it. But I, I, I hold out hope, especially for communities like this, because I think that we, as Mennonites, are better positioned to help foster a social imagination that is different than that social imagination. Returning to the theme, God's ways are not our ways. There's the recognition of that within this community. After all, abolition is already in, uh, in our denominational DNA as Mennonites. Toward the end of his book on prison abolition, Vincent Lloyd marveled that as a black Christian with no connection to the Anabaptist tradition, whenever he shows up at protests that are calling for the end of the prison, he always finds himself surrounded by Mennonites. It's something that always happens almost by default. That recognition from somebody who is outside of our denomination speaks volumes from where our social imagination has already led us, from place from where it has already taken us. As a people that wish to champion the things that make for peace, I hope that we can continue that trend. I hope we can continue to foster a social imagination that is committed to dealing with public safety issues without recourse to violence. The question is, how do we do that?
0: Next time is number 426 in Voices Together. And in this version, the, the you may be familiar with another song, Mothering God, You Give Me Birth, um, with a different tune. Um, this one is probably new for folks, so I'm going to ask Connie to play it through one time to listen, but it's, um, I think, fairly easy to pick up, so it's relatively new for us here. voices together and open to 996 in the back. And we'll be remembering those today um, who are in special need of, uh, for their physical health, for Connie's sister, Mary's husband, Ken, and then also for her brother, Ken. And we'll also be thinking of Wendy's sister, Glenda, and their whole family. And um, certainly DJ as he navigates his incarceration and their whole family. So we'll play, pray together in, uh, in number 996, and um, you'll do the all and people parts there. Listening God, you hear our prayers before we speak, yet welcome our praying. Therefore, we come with confidence to lay our requests before you. We pray for Christians everywhere, for our denomination and congregation, for strength to persevere in faithfulness. We pray for the whole people of God. We pray for the nations of the world, for all leaders, and for those who make policy decisions. We pray for the well being of our global community. We pray for the earth and all living creatures for all regions and species at risk, and for the sharing of resources. We pray for the wholeness of creation. We pray for those who are overcome by violence, for victims of injustice or oppression, and for those in poverty or pain. We pray for all who need healing and peace. We pray for those who endure trials, for those who are dying, and for those who mourn. We pray for all in need of comfort and hope. You have heard the prayers of your people, O God. We rest in the comfort of your care, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for our last song, I invite you, if you are able to care to to stand for 8 30 and we'll sing all three verses anybody wants to sing in welsh you can go ahead and do that but i think we'll do english Please stand for our sending. From this time and place into whatever awaits, may you follow God's way of compassion. May the embrace of Jesus ease your fears and encourage you to care for others. As you go, know that our God of the wilderness remains with all of us on the way. Amen. Go in peace. Lots of peace.